Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. today by a friend of mine who's had, uh, to me, a fascinating life, um, a really diverse series of jobs from running a law firm to being the country's top hostage negotiator, his most recent job. Uh, he was a national security advisor for a president, for a commander in chief. His name is Robert O'Brien. He's a wonderful person, a lot of fun, good person. Uh, but he's also the perfect person to take a survey of the world with. Ambassador, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Congressman, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be with you. All right. I got to do this because I always do it, no matter how famous, no matter what my guest is. Tell us about a young Robert O'Brien growing up. What were you like? What did you what was your family like? What, what did you think you wanted to be? Tell us about a young Robert O'Brien. Well, I grew up in a small town in California, uh, agricultural town called Santa Rosa, about an hour and a half north of San Francisco. Uh, wine country now, it's a little she-she, but when I was there, it was really a, a, a real egg town. And uh, grew up and went to Catholic school, had a brother and sister who went to Catholic school with me, and uh, parents. My dad was a Marine Corps officer and a, just a middle-class family, and uh, great, great mom and dad who loved America. You know, people ask for religion. I grew up Catholic. I'm latter-day saint now but uh grew up catholic but when people ask religion our religion was you know america uh talked politics around the dinner table loved ronald reagan my dad was a ronald reagan fan from early on from 68 and uh i think my first political experience was going to a rally uh at fairgrounds in boise idaho and uh ronald reagan was there at the state fair it was 1976 campaign and uh got, got hooked on politics in and loved ronald reagan that's kind of how we grew up you know, my first political experience, my father took me. I don't I was either not yet born, but, you know, around, you know, inside my mom or I had just been born. My father took me to a Barry Goldwater rally. But Ronald Reagan was the only picture on my dad's desk growing up. I literally thought he was my older brother <laughs> that, that we'd never I mean, I got three sisters. Their pictures weren't on his desk. My mom's picture wasn't on his desk. It was. Ronald Reagan in a cowboy hat. I wonder, not to digress, but I wonder what it was about Ronald Reagan that made him more than a political figure. You know, I think it was his optimism in America. He, he really believed in this country, believed in, you know, he grew up in a, a poor household, the alcoholic father lived above, in an apartment above a shoe store. But he went out and was a, uh, a lifeguard, made his money in the summer, saving people's lives, uh, went to Dixon College and played football and you know got, got his break in Hollywood you know covering the uh, the White Sox out in California and and the Cubs the Chicago teams and uh, 
great optimist. He lived the American dream. And he always let people know that, you know, I was always talking about the shining city on the hill and the beacon of liberty and, and, and America being the last best hope for mankind. And, and I think it appealed to folks like your dad and my dad and, you know, who grew up in the post-war world and, and saw America as a force for good. And, uh, and Ronald Reagan saw America as a force for good. And he uh, was also very skeptical of the federal government. You know, he used to tell the joke that you know, the, the worst thing that someone could hear is a Someone knocking on the door and saying, I'm from the federal government, I'm here to help. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, so he, he was just a, a great, great American. And it, it was, uh, it's, and you'll, you'll enjoy this being a South Carolinian. Uh, my first real experience in politics was watching the 76 convention in Kansas City. And, uh, you know, my dad was holding out hope, and a lot of people were holding out hope that uh, Reagan could beat Ford on the floor of the convention. And, and Strom Thurmond went over to the, uh, the Ford camp for, for President Ford, which is understandable, and the incumbent president, and, and, and Gerald Ford was a great man. Uh, but my dad got so mad at Strom Thurmond <laughs> in South Carolina and felt he'd betrayed the conservative cause and uh, for, for not supporting Ronald Reagan. But uh, but Strom came back around four years later in 1980, Ronald Reagan was president, and then we experienced, as you and I grew up in that era, we experienced a, a you know, rebirth of America that we haven't seen and winning the Cold War and economic success and prosperity and uh what what a template that is for today amen you know my father as a medical doctor would tell you the opposite of the force of of a force for good was his son going to law school uh that (laughs) that 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 may have disappointed my father more than anything else i ever did and there were a lot of other things to choose from ambassador but you also (laughs) went to law school so tell us why you chose law. I mean, clearly you could have done anything you wanted to do. Um, why that? Um, and would you do it over again if you had to do it over again? You know, I would. I, I grew up watching Perry Mason and uh, always wanted to be a lawyer and wanted to get into court and try cases. And I had, to, I was blessed to have the opportunity to do so like you. And I, I didn't have as many cases and, and trials as you did as a prosecutor. I was a, a defense lawyer on the civil side, but I got a fair number of trials and, and loved it. And I always felt it was a so something great about America that you could walk into court and uh, and be defending a company or an individual against government or against uh, maybe a richer, more powerful uh, opponent. But uh, if you can make the arguments in front of a jury and, and convince a judge or, or 12 folks in a box that, that your client was in the right, uh, that those 12 individuals or that judge could make a decision uh, against the power of the state or against the power of a big corporation and uh, – and, and your client could prevail. I thought that was, there was something very uniquely American about that, and, and I loved it. Now, look, I, I grew up, as I told you, in a middle-class family. We didn't know about MBAs and Wall Street and uh, you know, all the money you can make in private equity, and uh, I learned about that later. <laughs> I was already committed my, to my law career, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should have got into private equity trade, but I, 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 I felt it was uh, a wonderful opportunity to, to be involved in the community, be a community leader, and, uh, and I, I had a great time practicing law for 30 years. I think at one point you were, weren't you, the managing partner of a law firm? I mean, that that's not only practicing law, that's like running a big business at the same time. Well, or herding cats is maybe a better way to do it. <laughs> Try and keep a, 150 partners who are all uh, successful lawyers with big egos. Uh, rowing in the right direction is not always easy, but uh, I, I manage the, uh, the the West Coast operations, California, Missouri, and uh couple other 
uh, states for a, a national law firm out of Washington, D.C. called Aaron Fox. And great opportunity and a bunch of, had a great partners and was a politically involved firm and more on the Democrat side than on, on a GOP side, but they treated me well. Well, let me ask you this. Did managing a law firm with all the different personalities uh, and egos in some cases, um, did that help you become a hostage negotiator because you're trying to save your own life at the end of most work days? Or what prepares someone to be a hostage negotiator? So it's an unexpected job offer from the Trump administration. I have a, a, a distinguished uh, career of, of representing uh, or working on losing presidential campaigns. Uh, <laughs> right? So I, I've been with uh, with Governor Romney in two campaigns. The last campaign that I actually was on that we won was uh, 2004 for President George W. Bush. But uh, I went through two Romney campaigns. I've been Scott Walker, uh, as I know your friend. Uh, I was Scott Walker's national security advisor in 2016 and didn't know President Trump at the time. And uh, but but I, I supported him, supported him as a nominee, and and said good things about him because I thought Donald Trump would be a heck of a lot better than Hillary Clinton as uh, as president. Although I, I actually worked for Hillary Clinton and don't have anything bad to say about her, and uh, you know she's got some some attributes that are impressive. But uh, I, I thought I was out of politics. I promised my wife for probably the third or fourth time this is the last presidential campaign, last time I'm in government, and I got a call from the Trump folks. Uh, and and they, they told me the mission and uh I, I knew about some of the cases austin tice in syria and bob levinson in iran and and some of the others and danny burks in yemen and i just thought about these poor americans who are stuck overseas and look i i had some experience as a diplomat in the bush administration and as a army officer and a lawyer and and i thought you know maybe i can do some good and so i i took the job and we were very fortunate i, I Great supporter of Mike Pompeo, who was the Secretary of State at the time, and, and President Trump of getting the hostages home was, I think, for, for President Trump, I think he viewed it as a quintessential America first policy. If, if an American held abroad, it didn't matter how they got there, if they made some bad decisions to go hiking in a place they shouldn't have gone hiking, or if it was a journalist or a businessman who was in the wrong country. President Trump's belief was if you were an American, you were being held just because you were an American, they were trying to use that to leverage him or the country or the government. Uh, you know, that was wrong, and, and we'd do whatever it took, whether it was military action or uh, or tough diplomacy to get our, our citizens home. And so I, I I walked into a very supportive environment. And, and as far as the experience goes, I think, you know, the thousands of mediations and uh, and, and tough negotiations as a lawyer, you know, and especially in L.A., which is kind of a litigation town, as you know, and some of the best lawyers in the world and, and some tough plaintiff lawyers uh, trying to take a lot of bread off the, the table of my corporate clients, uh, I've been in some pretty pretty nasty negotiations over the years as a, as a, as a lawyer, and I think that helped prepare me for the job as a hostage envoy. But again, I was, I was fortunate to, to be in a situation where we had the support of the administration to get our folks home and to use any means necessary. And so, you know, that, that, and we had a great military that backed up the negotiations. I and mean, when you're negotiating and you've got, you know, the Navy SEALs and Delta Force and air, aircraft carriers, you know, at your back, that gives you a little bit of leverage. More of my interview with Ambassador Robert O'Brien is next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. 
Book your stay today at LQ.com. Before I'll let you go here, you've been a litigator. That, in my mind, raises a certain skill set. Uh, You do have a jury or a judge that you're trying to persuade. You can punch hard but fairly. Negotiating to me is different um, because the other side doesn't have to reach an accord. Uh, They can always string you along. There is no verdict, I guess, that you're waiting on. So what is the what is the skill set that you had as a negotiator? Or you mentioned mediation. That's different to me from litigation. What is the skill set? What are the three things that you think, you know, if you want to be good at negotiating in life, you better have this? Well, first of all, you have to know what you want and you have to have a clear goal of what you, what you want at the end of the negotiations and then figure out what kind of tools do you have to get there. So it's what do you want? What are your tools? But I think as a negotiator, you've always got to be willing to say no. I mean, as, you know, there's you have to be able to walk away from the table and the other side has to know that you're willing that there, there are certain lines that you're not going to cross and uh, you have to be able to say no. And uh, I think you got to have a lot of stick to itness. You got to have toughness, but at the end of the day, you have to have some tools that they understand that if, if you say no, there's a consequence for them. And I think in too many cases in, in negotiations with the United States, uh, our adversaries don't believe there are any consequences. Uh, and uh, we made it very clear. There'd be some pretty, pretty difficult choices for those countries that or those hostage takers that, uh, that had American citizens. If they didn't let our folks go, uh, they'd pay a price for it. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that's a tough message to send, especially if it's a somewhat friendly country, but you know, you, you've got to, you've got to be willing to play your cards. All right. You, that was one fascinating job you had. I want to move to what some people may consider the most fascinating job, which is national security advisor for a commander in chief. When Robert O'Brien goes to sleep at night for those two or three hours that most successful people sleep, as opposed to the 10 to 12 that I like to sleep, what are you most worried about? What, what as a husband, as a father, as a as an American worries you the most right now when you close your eyes? Yes, that's a great question to train. That was a question I was asked most often when I was serving as assistant to the president for national security affairs or national security advisor, as it's called. Uh, and the, the answer is twofold. Uh, number one, the, the, the threat to America, the threat that we've never seen in our history. I mean, uh, maybe going back to the Revolutionary War and facing the great superpower of the UK, the, the existential threat to our way of life, our liberty, the way our kids are going to live, our grandkids are going to live, uh, is the People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China. They have a vision that's very dystopian. It's a, a society of, that's totally controlled by the Communist Party. It's not just China, though. It would be bad enough if it was just China and, the, and we we're concerned about the Chinese people. But they, they want the entire world to be under their control. And so the, and it's a very powerful country, a billion three people, an economy almost as big as ours, a military that's that's been built up over the last several years in a way that we haven't seen since pre-World War One, when when the Kaiser built up the Kriegsmarine to try and displace the Royal Navy. Uh, they, they've done a similar military buildup. So we, we've never seen anything like or faced a challenge like we do in the People's Republic of China, just the scope and the scale of it, much greater than the Soviet Union was during the Cold War. So that's what concerns me long-term, five years out, 10 years out, you know, are, are we going to live in a free society? Are we going to be able to have free speech and have the right to bear arms and practice our religion and worship the way we want to? 
uh, have the uh, liberty to, to move around as we want and pick our careers. Uh, you know, that, 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 all of that is in danger if the Chinese become the dominant power in the world. So that's what concerns me the most, and that's the, the real threat to our country. The day-to-day -day threat when I woke up as National Security Advisor, even now, is Iran. It's the biggest state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, they're, they're very sophisticated. That's a nation state, so they have tools that terrorist organizations don't have. They're absolutely committed to displacing America uh, as the leading superpower in the world. Uh, they're, they're a regional hegemon. They're sponsoring civil wars in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon. Uh, they're a threat to our, our ally, Israel. They're very close to obtaining a nuclear weapon. Uh, and with they're not always rational thinkers. They're motivated by an ideology that's uh, kind of an end days ideology where they believe they'll be a, a force in bringing about the end of times and ushering in the 12th Mahdi's return. And and uh, very much like Christians believe that, that at some point everyone will, uh, every knee will bend and, uh, and confess that Jesus is Christ. That, that view that, that many of us as Christians have, they have that view for, for Islam and for the, the Mahdi's return. And so, God, and they want to usher it in. And so that's a very dangerous situation for us to be in. And so that's the day-to-day -day danger, right? They can't, they can't defeat us. We could defeat Iran, especially with our allies. Uh, but they're, uh, they're, they're bent on, uh, on harming America. We're the great Satan. Israel is a little Satan. And uh, they, they want to take out Israel and the U.S. and do anything they can to harm us, kill Americans, uh, hurt our economy, uh, destroy our friends and allies in the region. Uh, become the dominant power in the Middle East. And so that's the day-to-day -day concern. Uh, but the, the big existential threat to America is, is China and the Communist Party. Not, not the Chinese people. They're great people. They're hardworking. They're clever. They're, they're the best immigrants in the world that we have, uh, you know, maybe, maybe other than Irish immigrants. Uh, they're, uh, they're terrific. And so, so we love the Chinese people, but the Chinese Communist Party is a real danger to us. All right. When it, as, it, as it relates to China, we usually hear two words, both of which start with C, conflict, competition. There's another word that pops into my head, which also starts with a C, which is coexist. So whether it's competition or conflict, it seems like we're going to have to coexist. What would Robert O'Brien do? He's Secretary of State, Commander in Chief responsible for negotiating with China. What can we do to acknowledge the threat, coexist? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of interconnectivity from a commerce standpoint. I mean, you, 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 you really don't want the world's two largest militaries constantly at, at odds with each other. So how do we coexist with them? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very, very good question, Trey. And, uh, you know that's that's why I asked you to be on my uh, my advisory committee when I was the national security <laughs> advisor, and and you were you were terrific, and uh, because you ask questions like that that are just common sense questions that a lot of academics and a lot of folks in Washington don't don't ask the questions that your neighbor would ask you, and uh, and, and look, it, we we talked a lot about Ronald Reagan at the at the beginning of the show at the top of the show, and I think it goes back to Ronald Reagan's peace or strength. So we want to get along with the Chinese. I mean, even though they're a communist country and they're doing terrible things to their people and uh, and, and trying to displace us and, and displace the, the the way that the world works now. Look, we, we you know our farmers sell a lot of farm uh, products to China. We we do a lot of trade with China. The Chinese people are good people. Uh, they've got, they're they're building a thousand nuclear warheads. They've got more missile silos now than we do. Uh, so you're absolutely right. We don't want to be in conflict with China. 
And so it goes back to the classic question, how do you avoid conflict with an authoritarian or a dictatorship uh, like China is? And President Biden was right when he called Xi a dictator. How, how do you maintain peace? And, and there are kind of two approaches to it, Trey. One approach is appeasement. And we've seen how that works. And, and I think sometimes appeasement gets overused if you're talking about, you know, smaller countries or, you know, Sudan or, or some conflict somewhere. And people say, oh, this is a Munich moment. I don't think every moment is a Munich moment necessarily. Uh, and I think we've gotten into some wars that we probably don't need to be involved in because we're afraid of being of appeasement. But when we're dealing with a country like China, uh, appeasement is an attractive option. And it's always attractive in a democracy because as Churchill said, you know, you put off drinking the bitter cup. If you appease your adversary, just like the Chamberlain did in, in Munich with Hitler, and he said, well, just, this is a far, you know, you're talking about Czechoslovakia, you're talking about taking the Sudetenland. You know, this is a, a conflict with which our people know little about in a faraway land. Let's just give Hitler Sudetenland and that'll satisfy him. He'll be sated and then he won't do anything more. And we just give up a little piece of Czechoslovakia. And, and how can that hurt? And that's sort of, that we, we prevent a, another world war. And, you know, you can, you can imagine how the Western powers felt like that. They'd lost a whole generation 20 years earlier in World War One. And Chamberlain came back from Munich and people don't realize this and was wildly popular. I mean, Chamberlain's kind of a villain in history or a, a just, you know, uh, someone who's not respected in history because of Munich. But when he got back to the UK and he said, we've got peace in our time, he had a standing ovation in Parliament. And, and there, were, there were only five members of Parliament that stood against him, one of which was Churchill, and he had four, four colleagues. And Churchill said, I can't blame the people for being happy about Munich, having, you know, having gone through what they did in the First World War. But we're going to put up what we've suffered, a, a defeat without a battle, and the consequences are going to carry with us still a long way down the road. I'm paraphrasing. I'm nowhere near as eloquent as Sir Winston, but uh, but that was the, basically what his speech, you know, was the, the crux of his speech. And, and peace is popular because no one wants war. Everyone wants to get along, and we want to get along with China. But it doesn't work because you, you can't sate these dictators. Once they get a little taste of, of bullying and conquest, and in China you've got what they're doing to the Uyghurs, the genocide in Xinjiang. They've committed a genocide in Tibet. They, they're attacking their neighbors in India on the, on the border constantly. They're threatening to, to take over Taiwan. They've extinguished democracy in Hong Kong. We see what happens when you just give them what they want. There, there's always something more. And so the alternate route, the, the, the thing that's harder to do and harder to get support for is what Ronald Reagan talked about. It's peace through strength. And by having the strongest military in the world, and supporting our, our warriors, our fighting men and women, giving them everything they need to protect themselves, but also to defend us. You know, that, that's how we send a message to our adversaries. Uh, but it's not just on the military front. It's having the strongest economy, which means, you know, making it reinvigorating our capitalism and our, our free enterprise system, having a safety net for folks, but making sure that we have low regulation and low taxes. And so we have a, an American economy they can do what it did during the Reagan years and to, to fund the massive military buildup that defeated the Soviet Union without firing a shot. And so a strong economy, a strong military, strong diplomacy, that, that's what peace through strength is about. And that deters our adversaries. It's harder to, to sustain, and it, it takes a lot of effort. But, but we, we protect our liberties. We, we let our adversaries know that if they make a wrong move, uh, there will be severe consequences. And we let them know that they'll never defeat us. They won't, you know, they're, they're not going to subject us. America's not going to be subjugated by the Communist Party of China or the, the Iranian mullahs or any other group. And uh, so that, that, that's, that's how I think you, you get the respect of your adversaries and you're able to negotiate with them and, and, and coexist. It's not by appeasing them. 
the appeasement's easy and it's attractive and it, it seems like the way to go. But they're not like us. They're not going to take something and say, hey, the Americans showed a lot, a lot of goodwill. They gave us Taiwan. We'll be nice to them going forward. Well, they'll take Taiwan. Next thing they're going to want is Hawaii or Guam or, you know, Okinawa. And, and we know we know that. They're, the Chinese are already talking, the Chinese communists are already talking about taking Okinawa, which is part of Japan. So, you know, we have to understand appeasement, but doesn't work. Peace or strength does. But peace or strength is hard and it requires a commitment to the American people. And it, re- and it requires a bipartisan commitment, too. It's not just re- Republicans can't do this alone. We need our Democrat friends on board as well to understand the threat and to decide America's worth saving. And we're passing on the freedom that we have to another generation. That's going to take, take us rolling up our sleeves and some hard work. But that, that, that's how we coexist with China. And we do it on our terms. You know, Ambassador, you touched on human psychology. There are people, well-intentioned, good intention. They really, really believe if I am nice to those who are mean to me, it will change them. They believe yeah. that. Um, I, I saw it with crime victims all the time. It, if only I go along, if only I do this. And and it works with rational actors. But but then again, rational actors don't kidnap you. R- rational <laughs> actors, you know, aren't robbing your store. So that's a fascinating way to look at it. You mentioned peace through strength, which leads me to something I heard from a guest on my show that we're running low on certain munitions. And that stunned me because we ought to be the world's greatest superpower. I mean, not not to wage war, but to avoid war. So talk us through the state of our military and in particular, the, the current controversy, if you can, about cluster munitions or cluster bombs in Ukraine. There is some controversy there. What do you make of that? So so you've got two good questions there, uh, Trey. One is on, on clusters and the, the, the legal ramifications of using cluster munitions and that sort of thing. Let me address that second, because the first question you ask is really the critical question for us as a country, and that's our industrial base. You know, can we build the munitions? Can we resupply our, our stocks? Uh, can we repair our ships? Uh, can we build the ships we need to, 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 to project a piece of strength posture to the world? And what happened over many years, especially at the end of the Cold War, we, we let our industrial base dwindle. We were the greatest manufacturing country in the world, and we let that go away. In, in fact, we exported most of our manufacturing to China, our, our greatest adversary, which in hindsight is just a, it's a stunning decision. But, there, you know, we never thought that uh, there wasn't going to be – it was the end of history. There wasn't going to be another war. We were all going to get along. We did have just-in-time delivery and you know, supply chains you know, that, are, that were super efficient. And, and we, we took a lot of the know-how and, and, and just the, the material uh, that, that made America great, our, our manufacturing base, especially in the Midwest and, and South, where you are in South Carolina, and we exported it you know, out to China and other countries. We need to bring that back because we, what you realize is you know, if, we, if we can't buy the chips, the, the, the advanced chips, but also the legacy chips, the, uh, the mature chips, that we need to operate our platforms if they're all made in China or they're all made in Asia and we're, we're at a war on a war footing or we're at war with, with China, they're not going to keep selling us what we need to keep our military going. We've got to be able to build ships. We repair ships. We've got to be able to build ships. And uh, we've got to be able to, 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 to do manufacturing munitions. And we're seeing with this Ukraine conflict, how many munitions are actually used per day? 9, 10, 12,000 artillery shells a day. 
uh, in a war, we've got to be able to manufacture those. And we we kind of got to a point where we didn't think that was going to be necessary anymore. And and we're learning that history is reminding us that uh, uh, we we got to rebuild our industrial base. And I think we're going to do so. You know, and that doesn't mean totally decoupling from from China, but it means strategic decoupling. We got to build. The, uh, Mike Pompeo, your former colleague and friend, and my friend, and I supported the Chips Act, which the Biden administration. Uh, put forward and got a little criticism because it sounds like industrial policy and we don't like doing that as Republicans, but we have to bring chip manufacturing back to America. We can't be reliant on, on foreign countries to get the, you know, the, the, the basic, uh, you know, components for our platforms, whether it's the F-35 or the car you drive, the F-150 that's out in your, your driveway. And so we got to bring that home. We got to bring that. We've got to rebuild our shipyards. I mean, we, all of our shipyards combined in America are smaller than the biggest Chinese ch- shipyard, and wow. so they're 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 pumping out a destroyer or frigate every you know two months. We're lucky to get one a year out or two a year out. So you know we, we we've got to rebuild our military and be in a position where we can sustain our forces and give our fighting men and women the, the platforms they need to defend themselves and defend us. And that means rebuilding our industrial base. And I think that's going to happen. I think that both parties are committed to that, and that, that's good. Uh, but it's it's going to take some time, and so in, in the in the interim, we've got to deter our foes uh, and and give give ourselves a little breathing space to fix what we broke. I mean, I can give you an example. When I came to the Trump administration early on as a hostage envoy, I, I always had an interest in our national security situation and, and our what, what was happening at the Pentagon. With with the defense buildup that Trump proposed, most of that money the first two years didn't go for new airplanes or new ships or, or the helicopters or tanks. It went to replace the missiles and, and artillery shells that had been spent over the prior 10, 15 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. We hadn't been replenishing our supplies. So we spent two years with a massive military buildup, just just replenishing the, the stock uh, of, of munitions that we need if we were going to be in a future conflict. And it was only then that we could turn to building the new frigates and, and, uh, and other hypersonic missiles and, and the things we need to be competitive with China and Russia So and Iran. So I think we're getting there, but it's going to take sustained effort. And it's always easier to spend money on social programs and, and, and on butter than it is on guns. But the American people need to understand we need to re- rebuild our industrial base, not just for our e- electronic vehicles and autonomous vehicles and, and, and manufactured goods, but also for our military. And, and we need to get to the, there, there soon. On your cluster munitions question, I mean, people don't, most people don't understand what that, that means. It's basically an artillery shell that can go out, that gets fired by a, a howitzer, and the, the shell opens up and drops about 100 hand grenades or, or more, uh, the equivalent of hand grenades, out on a field the size of a football field. And you don't want to be under one of those. That's not a good place to be uh, if you're a soldier. And uh, I, I was a JAG officer, so I was far behind the lines and uh, never had to face any of the, the combat that our, our tip of the spear guys do. But, but a cluster munition is not something you want to meet on the battlefield. The Russians have been using cluster munitions since the outset of the Ukraine war. So they've been using them. They've been using them for for year, 500 days now, as long as the war's been going on. And the Chinese and the Russians manufacture cluster munitions. It's part of their military doctrine. They're going to use them to try and overwhelm our forces or our allies' forces in any conflict. We've been concerned on and in the West about cluster munitions because there is a potential that if they don't explode, they become like a landmine and they, 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 they'll you know, litter fields and farmers and civilians, you know, down the road when the conflict ends could be killed by a cluster munition uh, that it hadn't exploded when it was, when it was launched, just like a landmine. 
and they're also very brutal weapons. Uh, so if you're if you're using them in an area where there are both civilians and, and soldiers, the potential for killing civilians is is very high. Uh, if it's a, and so so you want to be careful where you use them. We have doctrines in the American military that we only use them in in situations where there there shouldn't be a lot of collateral damage or any collateral damage. And so I think there's a concern about how these weapons are used in war, and if civilians could be killed in a mixed targeting environment, but also what happens when the conflict ends, can civilians be killed? So again, this is one of those things in the West where we're concerned about individual individual people and their their, their lives and their well-being, you know, post-conflict or, or during a conflict. Our adversaries don't have the same concerns, so the Russians and Chinese are gonna use these weapons. Look, I, I support the Biden administration supplying these weapons to, to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Ukraine's been brutally attacked. Their children have been carted off to Russia. Literally, you talked about kidnapping earlier. We've seen kidnapping on a, a wholesale scale with the Russians rounding up Ukrainian kids and sending them back to Russia to help try and solve their demographic problem because the Russians aren't having enough babies. So they've kidnapped a bunch of Ukrainian kids. They're they're raping women. They're, they're brutalizing and torturing and, and killing you know, POWs and... Uh, it's a, it's a terrible thing that's happened to Ukraine. Ukraine's a beautiful country, and uh, but the re- re- Ukrainians have shown a lot of grit, and they've stood up to the Russians in a way that no one expected. I, I didn't. Uh, I, I don't think anyone expected to see the Ukrainians fight the way they are. They're fighting like hell, and I'm proud of them. And and we we should be the arsenal of democracy. And, and for the you know I understand some of our colleagues on the in, in kind of the conservative wing of our party, which I I feel, feel like you know I'm as as conservative as anybody, but. I think you are as well. And they're concerned about another forever war. But what I tell them is, unlike Iraq or Afghanistan or many of these other conflicts we've been in, no one's asking for American troops. The Ukrainians are, they're, they're tough guys and gals, and they're, they're fighting for their country. They're not asking for U.S. Marines to come in and save them. They're just asking for the, the tools they need for the, the weapon systems, whether it's an F-16 or a cluster munition or HIMARS or tanks from us and our allies so that they can do the job of defeating the Russians. And, and I, I find that very refreshing, having been involved in the Afghanistan conflict for many years and uh, Iraq and, and and watching the Ukrainians say, hey, we're, we, we've got this, we'll do it ourselves, just give us what we need to, to beat the Russians. So it puts, us, it puts us back in our traditional role of being the arsenal of democracy. But like like you show, like you mentioned and asked about, if we don't have the industrial base to, to to be that arsenal to, to create the, the weapon systems that our allies need to defend themselves, you know, we're not going to be much used to them. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right, Ambassador, I'm, I've got a couple of what I hope you will find fun questions, short questions. And I'll try and give shorter answers. That's a, that's a problem. You got to litigate online. You, you know that, Trey. You give a trial lawyer too much time and uh, I could listen to you. I could listen to you all day long. I love listening to subject matter experts. Most of my friends are not subject matter experts. Most of my friends don't have any idea what they're talking about. So I love <laughs> I love listening to someone who actually knows what they're talking about. So, but also know you got like other jobs. Uh, you might actually want to go play golf at some point. I don't know. So I'm gonna let me start with this. Would you serve in another administration? And is there a job that you think would be really, really interesting that you haven't had yet? 
Well, my, my wife will tell you no that we're done with politics, and uh, <laughs> and she said that after every government job I've had and every every campaign I've been on, she said, "Okay, that was the last one, right?" And I said, "Absolutely, honey, I'm not doing this again." <laughs> but uh, look, you know what it's like, Trey. If the, if the commander in chief, whoever that is, asks you to do something, you salute and say yes because we're so blessed to live in this country that if if we can give contribute in any way. Uh, to protecting the country and, and making America greater, uh, it, you know, you, you, personal sacrifice involved. It's it's worth doing, and uh, and so look, I, I I got no ambition. I, I feel like I had the best job in government as a national security advisor. Uh, Henry Kissinger will tell you that he's maybe was Secretary of State and national security advisor, and he'll tell you that having that off, that job because you you see so much, you see every every department, whether it's Treasury or Commerce or or State or Defense or the intelligence community. It's all coming through you to the president. So you, you, you get a broad view. You, you know, when you call me a subject matter expert, I'm not a subject matter expert. I've, I've got a, I got an inch deep, a, a mile wide and an inch deep. But, but you, you can call on you know, the greatest experts in the country you know, on any issue and bring them in and have them brief the president and, and learn something from them. And so that's a, that's a great job. Uh, but there are a lot of great jobs in government. I mean, some of our ambassadorships to, to important countries like Japan and Germany are great jobs. Uh, Director of the CIA is a great job. I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not seeking any of them. But uh, there are a lot of places to serve in the country. But uh, I, I was pretty fortunate and had a, a very special position. Didn't get a lot of sleep and you know a lot, a lot of stress for that job because you're, you're every every morning I'd leave the my my apartment in Washington say a prayer that we keep America safe that day. That was a, a very simple prayer. I didn't ask for a lot. I just said let's. Lord, let's keep America safe today, and help help me be an instrument in your know, your hands in doing that. And and that that that, that that's a, so it was a great job. But look, if I got asked to do something else, I'm sure I'd I'd say yes to the children of my family. But uh, but that that's what we do, and you you do the same thing. I know. Yeah, well, I I won't be asked because I don't have your background unless unless some president needs like a an advisor on college football, I can't imagine what I would possibly be at. Or maybe to have I, I think attorney, attorney General Trey Gowdy sounds pretty good to me. Oh, gosh. Nah, I think, I think Ambassador, I think you have to produce your college and law school transcripts when you're up for Senate confirmation, and there's not a chance in the world I will do that. All right, you have this fascinating career where near as I can tell, you have yet to pay a filing fee to run for any office. Everything seems to have been appointed. You were picked. Would you ever, have you ever thought about saying, you know what, I want the exhilaration of an election night, of watching the returns. I want to run for public office. I mean, I think it's insane, but I got to ask you, have you ever thought about it? No, I, look, I, I wouldn't run for dog catcher. Uh, but uh, we recently moved to Utah from California, where we lived my, our whole life. And uh, and as soon as I got here, folks were saying, "Are you going to run for mid seat? If he if he doesn't run, are you going to run for the governorship? Or you know, is this a political move?" I said, "Absolutely not. We like the mountains and the good air, fresh air, and uh, and the low taxes." And uh, so, uh, no, I, I'm not going to run for anything. I you, you'll get a kick out of this. And, and by the way, it's. I've got so much respect for people who run because it, it is a hard thing to do. I've, I've been an advisor to a lot of candidates and, and it's, it's hard to run and it's hard on the families and the, the flack that you take. And, and this goes for, for candidates on both sides. And I, that, that's why I love politics. I love politicians. I think they've really put themselves out there, you know, I, and, and again, it's, it doesn't matter if you're a, a D or an R uh, and you're running for office. It's, it's hard on you. It's hard on your family. 
And then, then you know, look, there's a 50-50 chance you're going to lose. And those election nights, uh, having been a senior advisor and lost, I know how tough that was. I can only imagine how tough it was for the candidates. Walter Mondale, was, I think, was asked once, uh, uh, when did you get over the uh, losing the presidency to Ronald Reagan? He said, ask me in 10 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, it's, it's, look, it's tough to run for office. I've got a lot of respect for the folks who do. I, I'm always flattered to be asked. There was, you, you'll enjoy this. At the, at the end of the administration, there was some uh, speculation that I was going to run for president. And uh, a couple of people have written about that, I some, some books and that sort of thing. I was going to be a candidate. I was never going to be a candidate for president. President Trump called and asked me if I was running. I said, no, sir, I'm not running. He said, well, that's good. We'll get along better that way. <laughs> so so it's, 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 it's very flattering to be asked, but I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't expect to be a candidate for any elected office. But uh, if someone needed some help, when you, when you get elected as, you know, as president or governor of South Carolina, you call me, I'll be happy to help you do whatever you need to do, Trey. I got friends that, are th- that have thought about it or were asked to think about it, like you and Pompeo. I got a friend running. Uh, I mean, I, a couple of guys on, and gals I know running, but Tim Scott, obviously, it is – look, I, it is grueling to run. It is grueling to run for the U.S. House. I cannot imagine with those women and men – an ambassador, chances are they're not going to win. They're only – they're less right. than 50 people in that group. So it is hard to get in that group, but uh, all right, I'm well, I got well, there, there, there's a fun there's a fun book for your listeners to read it, if you can get a copy of it. It's out of print, but it's Richard Brain Kramer wrote a book called What It Takes a few years ago about uh, the, the presidential campaign. I think it was uh, 1996, but uh, that, that campaign, or maybe it was a 92 campaign. But anyway, re- read that book if you're interested in running for president. It's a it's a great exercise. You're right, it's a hard. It's a hard thing to do, and and you you've got two South Carolinians who are both friends, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, or both great Americans who are running, and, uh, and of course my former boss is running. Who I you know I think the country would be better off if President Trump was president again. But uh, you know there are a lot of great candidates running, and I, you know it's kind of funny. I'm sure it's for you that you and I know most of them who are running, and uh, and they're good people, and I, God bless them for being willing to go out and and uh, give their vision to the American people and try to make the country better. Yeah, it, it, it is, on the one hand, sort of strange to think back. You know, Mike Pence sat behind me on the Judiciary Committee. He, he was just a n- another member, not just another member. He was a very, very well-regarded member of the House Judiciary Committee. But, yeah. you know, Ronnie DeSantis sat a couple down from me on two separate committees. So it, it is, I don't know, whether people... Look, hopefully you'll only vote for one. Uh, you won't vote multiple <laughs> times, but I just have a lot of respect for people that are willing to do it. You have to put your life on hold. I see what Tim Scott goes through because I talk yeah. to him the most. And it's just, yeah, there, and there's a lot of criticism that comes with it. So we're going to end on a happy note. I like to ask my guest, well, I almost had to stop asking because I, I asked, John Radcliffe, tell me about a book that you've read that, you know, changed your life. Well, it's clear John hadn't read any books. So he said, <laughs> he said, I read the Apostles Creed. I said, well, John, that's, uh, that's not a book, John. I mean, that, that's that's pretty short. That's a paragraph. So I almost stopped when Radcliffe could not think of a book that he had read. But but I, I love to read. So what is something you have read that that 
changed your life or changed the way that you looked at something or something you would recommend to people? Well, I, like clearly the Bible or, you know, it would, would be the, the book that we should all read. And, and but, but putting that aside, because I assume that that's a, that's a given. A uh, couple of books I'd, I'd recommend. One is a book by Winston Churchill that he wrote uh, later in life uh, in the 30s. It's called My Early Life. It was an autobiography that he wrote of his life up until the time he was about 32 years old. And it's the only autobiography he wrote. And it was it's about his early years. And uh, great book. Uh, you get an idea of the guy who saved him, you know, saved the world uh, and, and what prepared him to do it. And so when college kids and young people ask me what to read, that's a great book. If you're interested in the Middle East, which is where we've been for so many years, uh, uh, there's a book by an, another Brit, uh, T. Lawrence, uh, they call The Revolt in the Desert was what it was called in America. Seven Pillars of Wisdom was the title in the UK. But about his time, is, it's, it's Lawrence of Arabia, his time in, in uh, Arabia and Jordan in the, uh, the First World War and, and running the guerrilla campaign and, and how they defeated the Turks and, uh, and led the Arab Revolt. So that's a, uh, that's, that's a great book. There, there was a book recently, uh, a couple of years back, that was not a national security book, called Coming Apart, written by Charles Murray, talking about how, you know, America's got, talking about some of the problems we have in America with, with the uh, the growing divide between working class folks uh, of all colors and uh, the opioid ac- ap- epidemic and the uh, the lack of opportunity for, for much of rural America, but also inner city America compared to how upper middle class and then wealthy Americans are living. And uh, a very sobering book. It's worth reading if you're interested in social sciences and and kind of what what drove I think President Trump getting elected the forgotten man and uh, and how we've got to cure you know heal things here in America bring people together not not just uh, on racial grounds or but but economic grounds how we, how we take care of people in Appalachia and uh, why we got such a high suicide rate so that was a you know pretty pretty interesting book that I'd recommend but there, there there's so much good to read out there I I'm lucky because I'm I'm friends with uh, a couple of, of thriller thriller you know writers of thrillers and suspense novels and. Brad Thor is a, a good buddy of mine, and uh, so I always get Brad Thor's summer novel, which I think is always a thing to look forward to every summer and uh, read at the beach or at the pool. So I just got Brad's new book, Deadfall, and, uh, with Scott Harvath, who's the uh, the former Navy SEAL, you know, uh, U.S. operator, special operator, and uh, so so you know, Brad Thor writes a great book, and so there, there's a lot of good, great things to read out there, but. But whatever you do, just just read. I mean, that's you know, amen. Give, give that advice to our friend John. It's, it's just, even if it's a newspaper. <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard to read when you're on the golf course for twelve to fourteen hours a day. But but I, I'm trying to work on him, trying to give him. I've even given him a book on tape, or he doesn't have to work that hard. But. I am lucky. I've got some people that constantly give me great book recommendations. Dana Perino was probably my number one source of book recommendations, but I, she's terrific. I love her. I love her. One of the most decent people uh, you will ever meet on or off air. Uh, but so yeah, yeah, look, I, I give if I if I can get John Radcliffe's two handicap, I'd give up reading. I think I, my, my golf is so bad. Right? <laughs> if I could switch and get, Get Radcliffe's handicap. I think I might give up reading to take his handicap. So you know, maybe maybe he, maybe John's smarter than all of us. Uh, he would tell you that he is. Um, and, uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful person. He thinks very highly of you. I know y'all work very closely together, and he is uh, 
he is the little brother that you wish your parents had put up for adoption is the way I describe <laughs> uh, our relationship. But I cannot thank you enough. I, I mean, I've known who you were from for a long, long time. People know your name, but I, I think they had a sense today, Ambassador, of not only how knowledgeable you are, how lucky we've had you to serve our country, but also what a decent human being you are. So thank you for that. And uh, look forward to having you on my show sometime soon. Uh, there'll be no shortage of, of topics. The world seems like it's on fire. So thank you, Ambassador Robert O'Brien. God bless you. Thank you for having me on, Trey. Thank you. You know, you're a great friend. Yes, sir. You take care and thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.